to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, is Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Yeah man, I'm, uh, I'm going well. I've not been on for a while, uh, not been speaking to you for a while. It's been quite some time, about a month, hasn't it? Mm, yeah, it's been a month of us uh, kind of early 2000s outcasting it. You know, mm. you're doing your thing, I'm doing my thing. You record an episode where someone's just holding an umbrella for some reason for the entirety of it. It's all very strange. Mm. Yeah, but we're back now and that's all that matters. Yes, unlike Outcast, who still refuse to work together after 13, uh, 14 years, however long it's been since Idlewild came out. And mm. yeah, just very disappointing in them. I think they still get on. It doesn't seem like they've had a falling out. It's just kind of like they're off doing their own thing, but... Andre 3000 was about to pick up the phone, but then he saw Big Boy turn up at the Super Bowl <laughs> halftime show with Maroon 5 and was just like, oh, I'll call a pizza instead. Yeah, that adds another five years onto the hiatus right there. Yeah. What's the statute of limitations on playing with Maroon 5? <laughs> I think we're going to find out if they reunite when they're in their 50s, then that's, we know, okay, it's at least like 15 years or so. Because those guys are still like crazy young. <laughs> like, I always find it like because they were. They became very, very successful, like in their like late teens, early twenties. I think they put out their first album. Like, mm. I'm always surprised that they're still like maybe barely into their forties, because you know, like when they were coming up, and I first discovered their music, it's like, oh, these people are adults. They must be, they must be old because they're very successful and out in the world, and not like, oh, they're like seven years old, <laughs> or something. Like, you don't really make that leap when you're. 13 or whatever mm. is this maroon 5 or, or outcast you're talking about uh, outcast in this instance but also i think maroon 5 however old they were when it was they became successful was was too young because they should never have become been successful like yeah that should have eluded them it doesn't matter how old they are they they, they appeal purely to the uh, the kind of the 45 to to, to 52 market mm. <laughs> yeah although there was one guy on my corridor at university who was mad into maroon 5 when they started like he loved their first album and it was always very curious and then on facebook like a year or two ago like he was complaining about their more recent work and how it's like oh man like they've really lost it and you really have to struggle to be like they never had it <laughs> like, mm. there was nothing for them to lose they just kind of adopted a, a slightly more bland and uninteresting sound than the one they were already playing with I thought you were gonna say that years later you saw on Facebook that he'd killed again. This person <laughs> there kind of locked himself in, listened to Maroon Five. It was the only natural conclusion at that age. I mean, he listens to Maroon Five at university. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the warning signs. Mm, yeah, it's like a kid who um, I I didn't live in halls because I I got to uni like too late, but mm. there was only one halls available for my campus. And there was uh, a guy, apparently from the people who lived there, there's a guy in the room, he never came out of his room, and he never really did anything. And the only time anyone saw any, any or anyone saw him doing anything was that they knocked on his door and he said, come in and opened it. And when they opened it, he was sat in a chair uh, eating some butter. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, there you go. That guy probably liked Maroon 5. I mean, it was pre-Maroon 5 those years. It was a long time ago now, but yeah. 
Yeah, he's probably into, I don't know, Shed 7 or something, whoever is. <laughs> it's possible. It is very possible. So we'll go on to the news for this week. It's a kind of a, a lean week, but there were certainly some uh, some interesting things. We got some trailers for movies that seem to be dubious prospects. The kind of most notable of which I think was the trailer for the new Pixar movie Onwards, which is a movie set in a magical world of unicorns and trolls and dragons and things like that where they're all kind of living in the suburbs and it's kind of like a what if you know the world of magic just kind of evolved past the medieval feudalist kind of image that we all had and they all became like crossing guards and teachers and suburban moms and dragons and now dogs and things like that and as I was watching it I just kind of thought to myself, if you told me this was like a Blue Sky Productions movie, you know, the people who do Rio and Epic, who, mm. are, now, who are now owned by Disney, uh, surprisingly enough, uh, if you told me that it was a movie by them, I would believe you, because it looks like real, generic, early 2000s animated, <laughs> computer animated movie stuff that doesn't feel like a huge amount of the Pixar spark to it, and the, the big kind of thing about it is that the the two main characters are brothers played by Tom Holland and Chris Pratt who are going on a road trip together and the Chris Pratt character kind of talks in lofty kind of knight errand language and the other one is just kind of like a teenager who uh, is really annoyed at him for leaving the tra- leaving the lid off of the 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 bins and now the unicorns have got in it looks it 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 doesn't look great is what i'm saying uh at the end of the day it doesn't it doesn't look quite up to pixar par Mm, it sounds like you were just making that up uh, (laughs) on the spot that doesn't sound i don't know anything about this movie i i said to you before we went on air i've only seen the poster which Mm. i thought was a fan-made poster because it shares the same font as frozen yeah um i didn't actually know it was a thing, but here we are, and it sounds pretty bad. Uh, obviously, Pixar have got they've got a pretty solid track record. Um, wobbled a bit in the last decade or half decade, but mm. that's fair to say. But um, yeah, that 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 doesn't sound that doesn't sound very good at all because surely the exciting part of fantasy is not imagining the magical creatures working as like accountants or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it does seem to be an avenue for lots of silly puns like there was one that did make me laugh just because it's really esoteric which is like there was a the, you see briefly the front cover of a newspaper and it says like centaur gallop poll released and like you know gallop of course being the the pollsters who often poll like political races and things like that i kind of think okay that's kind of like a half decent pun but then everything else did seem to be sort of that lazy juxtaposition of the fantastical and the mundane which can work like you know there really isn't that much difference between this and like monsters inc in some ways like you know what if monsters had a day job and their day job was scaring you and you know everything that seems really fantastical and strange to you as a child is actually just them going about their day and just doing the thing that you know keeps the lights on but quite literally because of course Mm. screams are their electricity but the thing about it that's that you know like there that the whole thing is like it's taking the idea of the monster in the in the cupboard or whatever that jumps out at you and scares you and the, the, this kind of like childhood fear and kind of puts an interesting spin on it whereas this does seem to be 
not that inventive a spin on anything. Like you could maybe see like some of Terry Pratchett's work kind of delves into this sort of stuff about the idea of, you know, what if magical creatures were also everyday people, but there's a little more of a satirical spark to it than is immediately apparent from this trailer. And and Disney kind uh, not Disney, uh, Pixar do have like you say they have a, a track record of great great movies, but they also have a track record of uninspiring first trailers. So you would just kind of hope that maybe this one ends up being like one of the ones that just doesn't work in trailer form and maybe when you get into it there's something a little more special to it. But I don't know, I'm getting mad good dinosaur vibes from it personally. Mm, yeah, and that's not particularly fun. I think if you, if you were going to do kind of like magical creatures live in a in a kind of suburban environment, at least have the the balls to do it kind of like a remake of the ice storm. Well, like everyone's like at wife swapping parties, and everyone's like really, really unhappy with Nixon. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, but that's Nixon exactly is like a pixie or something. <laughs> Pixon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just, just, just send us the checks now, lads. Uh, we'll just rock, we'll bang this out in an hour. Yeah, you've got a few more months. You can really, you can really rewrite, rewrite it. It's like <laughs> it's like the old Pat Oswalt bit about uh, comedians being brought on to rewrite animated movies by just saying okay just think of jokes that could be said when no one's mouth is on screen <laughs> it's like that but it's the whole movie mm, yeah the next trailer that i think got um a lot of attention for being um hard to believe that it's a thing that exists even though it's been announced for a while was the trailer for rambo last blood the presumably final movie in the rambo franchise or at least until they reboot it with someone else uh, mm. pro- probably some sixth tier rest- wrestler, but uh, it's obviously stars Sylvester Stallone, who's back in the car- in the role again for the first time since two thousand and eight, when he shot up half of Burma in the last one. And this time, he's going after the cartels, and he's doing it to the sound of Old Town Road, <laughs> uh, which is uh, yeah, it's just a very uninspired musical choice. Literally, like what song it happens to be very popular this month okay let's put it over this trailer and maybe slow it down a little bit so it feels melancholy and like the passing of an age even though that age is i don't know indiscriminately killing people but yeah it it feels very tired and in terms of you know late period stallone revivals the rocky he he kind of got away with it with rocky a couple of times where you had a character who had a certain degree of warmth to him and who had this kind of wide cast of supporting characters who were all killed off and made him just a very sad figure, but in a way that really, really worked in Rocky Balboa and especially the first Creed movie. But yeah, there's not really that same sort of feeling with Rambo. He's just a guy who kills and or at least you know that's how he evolved to be after the first movie which did have him be like you know traumatized and a veteran and all this sort of stuff the others other ones is just stallone wants to strap a machine gun on and just mow people down and this this based on the trailer looks very much in that vein Mm, i feel like he's painting himself into a corner by calling the film last blood yeah although i suppose they could reboot it as new blood or fresh blood or blood transfusion or Blood Bank. I mean, there's plenty there. I mean, they could just go back to the origins of the series and call it Rambo 6 Last Blood Part 2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rambo 7 Last Blood 
episode four, <laughs> New Blood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and then he he teams up with Shia LaBeouf as possibly his son. Hmm. I'd like to see him hooking up with the Mujahideen again, like he does in three. Mm. That was the thing in the trailer. Like he talks about his past coming to haunt him or whatever. I'm kind of like, oh, are the Mujahideen coming for him? Are they gonna Are they gonna lend a hand in the final battle? Mm. Yeah, they do owe him a favor. Uh, someone posted on Twitter that they changed that for the re-release of the movie on Blu-ray to like, the, it literally says something like to the spirited people of Afghanistan as opposed to uh, the literal Mujahideen. Mm. I think they changed that like, like really far, like a long time ago. Because I uh, I've only seen that while I I'm sure I saw it like you know post university or whatever, and, and it's the gallant people of Afghanistan that's it. who, who it's dedicated to. I th- I think they changed that a long time ago. Or I'm remembering it wrong. It could be. Like it definitely seems like within like two or three years of that movie coming out, they would have just had a moment and thought, Yeah, maybe maybe we've backed the wrong horse on this mm. one. Mm. Uh, our final one of the kind of like the the trailers that came out that actually genuinely does look kind of fun is the movie The Kitchen starring Melissa McCarthy, Tiffany Haddish, and Elizabeth Moss, based on a comic book series from DC Vertigo, about three mob wives who take over once their husbands go to prison. It's basically widows, but uh, seemingly a little trashier. Um, I thought you said mogwise (laughs) from Gremlins. I was like, what? (laughs) The fuck's happening? Or like the the noise rock band. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I, I was at a festival once and I was at the comedy stage uh, while Mogwai were headlining and mm-hmm. the comedian who came on said, I hear Mogwai are on, or as I like to call them, Radio 3 with feedback. <laughs> Which I thought was a, that was a fairly cutting uh, way of describing them. Mm. Post-rock, but I believe they say. Post-rock, that's right. Post-rock, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it looks pretty fun. It's set in 1978, I think, so it's very, uh, very stylized vision of 70s New York, that kind of like glamorous grime that I think you see from anyone who... Uh, basically says this is sort of like what new york was in the 70s right you know like Times square was full of porn theaters but they were very brightly lit you know Mm. which certainly kind of suggests that it could be kind of fun elizabeth moss is putting on a very heavy brooklyn accent in it or bronx accent in it which uh it it could be quite fun and i it's a role the sort of role that she hasn't done in quite well i guess she kind of has a little bit of that in us you know being in a in a genre movie and Certainly, when she gets to play her tethered, really kind of letting loose with the craziness. But it, it, it looks fun and quite different for her and Tiffany Haddish. And, you know, seems to be Melissa McCarthy as well going in her semi-serious vein that she started with. Uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me and some of her other more recent work, but kind of a bit brash and bolder. And it's directed by um, one of the writers of... Straight out of Compton, who uh, I think maybe has a uh, uh, seems to bring a lot of energy and, and style and panache to it. So it it mainly stands out just because it it's an, an unusual kind of movie to be seen giving like a huge push, like a movie that's three female leads, crime genre, not necessarily aimed at you know kind of big four quadrant audience, but being marketed as if it's a big blockbuster. It's, it, it'd be interesting to see how well it does and if it turns out to be good, uh, mm. which I, I would like it to be because I, I like literally everyone involved with it. It's also got Bill Camp in it in a supporting role and I love that guy. He's always always brings a certain degree of 
uh, weathered gravitas to everything that he does. Mm, yeah, I, I'd be. I was kind of interested to see where Melissa McCarthy's career went post Oscar nom or second mm. Oscar nom. I forget that she got nominated for Bridesmaids, which seems weird now. Mm. But uh, yeah, I was kind of interested to see where it would go. But that cast is 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 great, and I, again, I second that in saying that I like every single one of them. And I think you know we we need more original programming in the theatres um, because whilst that is all migrating to streaming, it's nice to see these things in the theatre and I'd, you know in the vacuum that's left by the big boys, the the kind of Disney's and everything. This kind of film, the, the what you know what used to be called the middle brow, mm. you know, drama or comedy drama needs to be seen because. Yeah, it, they're kind of uh, like the, the Sumatran white rhino at this point. Mm. Mm. And uh, the kind of final, I guess, marketing point for this week, just because it's been amusing me greatly, uh, is the sheer ineptitude of the marketing for the new version of Shaft that is coming out, which seems to be based entirely around the notion of making bad jokes to own the libs. That seems mm. to be the tack that they've taken. All of the tweets for it have been what can only be described as very bored-looking images of Samuel L. Jackson as Shaft saying stuff like, how the fuck do you milk an almond? I ain't drinking that shit. It's like, <laughs> is that a line in the movie? I doubt it, but who knows? Uh, it just seems to be him shitting on millennials or kind of like millennial culture but to no end of like making the movie seem particularly appealing, unless it's mm. kind of appealing to sixty-year-olds who are also on Twitter. Like it seems very confused. Yeah, it's. I genuinely thought it was just a bad Photoshop mm. when I saw it pop up because there's one that's like, "What's an IPA? The only IPA I believe in is I'll beat your punk ass <laughs> or something." It was just like, "What? What?" What? I mean, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. And I don't think they're making a joke at the people that they think they are. I, I didn't understand it. There was another one as well. It was like, I'm going to smash you like Avo on toast or something. And, and I was like, these can't be real. But when you told me they were real, I just, I, I still don't believe it. It's such a stupid thing. Like, I mean, do, who are they? What? I don't understand. Well, I don't know. what. How desperate are they for these wild swings in the dark to to kind of uh, target the millennial audience who don't know what Shaft is. Yeah. And, uh, like, they might think it's a remake of the Samuel Jackson movie from the early 2000s, but also, like, not get them on side and basically make it feel like the film is aimed at dads mm. who, who you know, want to kind of teach these kids a thing or two. And I, yeah. I, I'm, just, I'm just utterly confused by the whole thing. Yeah, it's been... It is really quite unusual and uh, off-putting in many ways. And really, at a certain point, you wonder, is it some sort of bizarre performance art piece in the way to meme yourself into failure? Because that seems to be the thing that they are doing, these really half-hearted attempts to cram Shaft, who is not by any means a, a character in the popular consciousness, except maybe at this point pretty much just the theme song. Like that's mm -hmm. that's the main thing people think of is they think about Shaft, and the thing as well. I just I was just browsing through the Twitter feed now, just for other examples. There's one which is like just a shot of Samuel L. Jackson kind of looking a little quizzically of someone, and then it's just like when they ask for the ox the ox cord, but their taste is trash. It's like 
what are you? What has that got to do with Shaft? <laughs> it's just like these real half-eyed attempts to just put him into anything, and it does feel like the the worst attempt of people trying to emulate the way that people talk online and the natural way in which kind of memes grow up and become this shared language and just cramming it onto a movie that really doesn't have any connection to that sort of stuff at all. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And in other quite stupid marketing kind mm. of ploys, we've seen character posters drop for The Lion King, Disney's yes. live... Is it, is it live action? I can't even call it live action. It's animated live action? There's yeah. no humans in it, is there? No. there's like Unless it's like Apocalypto and they show up at the end. It's like, oh, no. Mm. <laughs> Things have gone bad here. But the character posters, which is a you know a thing that happens now... Um, they're just pictures of animals. Mm, yeah. And when you see them alongside, and, and like, this is not a hot take at all, but, you know, people who are kind of suspicious or against, you know, just a bit kind of perplexed as to why Disney is, is just making live-action versions of their animated films is if you look at the characters side by side, the the hand-drawn animated characters in The Lion King have have got, like real personality and real mm. kind of they they brim with with they're animated you know if you look at yeah. scar the, the yeah the, like a still of scar you kind of know what that character is about and you know you kind of get the idea and you know combined with the voice performance that character really comes alive but all you've really got now is someone dubbing a lion <laughs> a photorealistic mm. lion and and yes it's impressive to see things recreated with um, a degree of photorealism, but when it strips characters that are kind of larger than life of their personalities, then it's it's probably not a good thing. I think you said that I've I've not seen the Pumbaa poster, <laughs> but it's just a just just an ugly fucking pig. Yeah, yeah, it is. It it's basically just you know the difference between the first one where the the the, the character in the animated movie is kind of fun-loving and charismatic and you look at him and you think oh that's kind of like a lovable pig sure he stinks but you know everyone kind of loves him and you just look at it and you think god look at this grim image of what nature has produced <laughs> 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 this this kind of real tough to look at thing and, and that's repeated across all of them and and you, you also when it shows like the picture and it's like simba and nala or young nala particularly it's like it's just lion cubs. Like, there's no difference between these two images. Like, there's no way to tell these characters apart. It doesn't feel where all of the animated characters feel very distinctive, and they are they are iconic because they're instantly recognizable. And I don't think that's the case with the the images so far. We've seen. Maybe they'll be iconic once you see them in action, but but even then, that has to prov- uh, provoke some sort of problems because, like there's limits to what you can do with photorealistic animals. They can't be as expressive as the animated versions. They also can't do like the, you know, if you think of Scar's animation in the original movie, he, there's, there's hundred bits where he's like sitting up on his hind legs and he's like moving his paw in a way that's meant to be kind of like very sinister and very like finger like basically, you know, it's not how a cat's paw actually moves. You can't really do that if it's, a photorealist thing otherwise you end up in the uncanny valley and everyone being like it's really weird that this animal that looks like a real animal is acting in a way that is completely not how animals move mm. and that maybe suggests that 
even if the characters don't look that expressive you know that also they'll be limited in making up for for that in through movement and do some form of expressionism which you know doesn't doesn't bode well it's still going to make a load of money because obviously everyone remembers the lion king it's you know an iconic movie it's hugely popular and people are at the very least you know based on the way that the the, the aladdin remake has done people are at least willing to go up the first weekend and check it out and think oh, what's this about but it'll be it'll be very interesting to see how that movie ends up doing because i could very easily see it doing very very well the first weekend and then everyone being like no <laughs> let's just go watch the cartoon again yeah but then by that point they've got your money that's true yeah like it doesn't really matter to disney uh, unless you know it's a, a solo style money loser mm, i can't see it no no it's still probably going to earn like a billion worldwide but i think there's a there's a difference between a billion worldwide and like a billion and a half worldwide and i think that is you know the quality of the movie but like say disney are, are, are walking home perfectly happy with all the money in their pockets Mm, yeah they're doing all right these guys yeah and uh, another bit of disney news they announced that they are possibly going to remake snow white with mark webb who previously directed the two worst spider-man movies mm-hmm. and uh has oh, kind did, of... did you do both of them yes he did Good grief i know like you'd think after the first one he would have learned his lesson but no he he came back for the one that no one liked. <laughs> mm. And it's he, different, weird to think that like the studio were like, "Oh, we'd like some more of this, please." And you this this really kind of odd, disjointed, unlikable film. Can we have a, we have more, mm. um, but louder, please? Yeah. Well, that first one I think did okay. It was still the lowest grossing of all the Spider-Man movies because they're all like those three rainy ones were just so massive. Um, but like it still did okay. I thought they they kind of thought, well, you know, we've we've established there's a new actor, and you know that we're doing our own thing with it. Maybe the second one will work out, and then everyone, well, I say everyone, some people saw the second one and said, no, do not see this. You know, everyone who saw that movie basically became Werner Herzog and Grizzly Man, and just went mm. round to everyone else like, you must not see this. <laughs> <laughs> you must not see Giamatti as the Rhino. <laughs> I mean that's a chilling impression, first of all. But like, yes. I can actually picture him saying that because <laughs> when, when when you just mentioned it, I'd forgotten that Paul Giamatti <laughs> plays the Rhino. Um, yeah. Oh, that's embarrassing. Yeah, I recommend to people look up the last scene of the Amazing Spider-Man Two on YouTube, and because it's basically Spider-Man facing off against the Rhino, and see how awkwardly Paul Giamatti is CGI'd into this into this. Uh, robot rhino suit it does look like someone's just taken him from another movie and put him in it does not <laughs> look good at all it mm. looks quite terrible <laughs> and that's kind of uh, that's kind of whole, how the whole movie feels yeah totally but yeah so mark webb are mark webb is being touted as someone who's going to do a live action snow white which uh is obviously a great idea because that's not proven to be a bad mistake in very recent memory oh wait yes it has in 2012 when there were two live action snow whites and neither of which really set the world alight we had the mirror mirror which was the one i hated i think everyone Mm. had very strong feelings about both those movies i know there were some people who loved mirror mirror and then were just like totally aghast at snow white and the huntsman but i was the other way around i thought that snow white and the huntsman was 
kind of fine as kind of very generic post Lord of the Rings fantasy pablum, but that Mirror Mirror was actively like annoying <laughs> and bad and just deeply, deeply yeah, just like really wasted a really good cast and a good idea and a good director in Tarsum. That was the kind of the point at which I realised, yeah, I like that one Tarsum movie, I like The Fall, and I kind of don't feel he's ever going to do anything again that really connects with me the way that that movie did. But, you know, he's still kind of got a good visual sense and I really felt it was wasted on that movie. Hmm. Did the cops just come to your house because you were chatting shit about Mirror Mirror? I think so, yeah. That was that was really close. <laughs> Is there an alligator loose or something? Who knows? I will stop badmouthing Mirror Mirror now and the work of Tarsum because clearly the Orlando Police Department don't don't truck with that sort of thing. But those those two movies, I think, demonstrated that the Snow White name and brand doesn't really have that much of a power or appeal to it uh, because you know it's kind of a movie that a story that is old and tired at this point. I think mm. and whilst maybe you could get some traction with an interesting take on it, like the Snow White and the Huntsman was different from previous versions of that story. It's like it's a, a standard version of it, which seems to be probably what Disney would offer, would probably not really connect with people that much, especially when you hire someone who's a fairly uninventive, non-visionary <laughs> like Mark Webb. Mm, yeah. I mean, he has been working on Crazy Eight's Girlfriend... Yes, which he did a decent job on. Yeah, but that's it, isn't yeah. it? Really? Yeah. He also had didn't he have like a like a treacly drama with Chris Evans or something from a few years ago? It's like something like Gifted or something, which mm. was very much like his. Oh, I'm making small movies now. I'm getting back to my roots, which no one cared about because like yeah, yeah, you're not you're not really good at those either. Yeah, I think every single non Avengers Chris Evans movie I know of is the same movie. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like maudlin sentimental drama um where he looks just really earnest and mm. kind of longingly at someone and yeah. that's it <laughs> that seems to be he's made two movies he's well he's made not another team movie that's one yes uh he's made superhero movies or maudlin sentimental adult dramas yeah and snowpierce of course is the most maudlin of them all yeah yeah <laughs> that was really drab <laughs> <laughs> very serious very po-faced mm. Um, yeah. But yeah, like I really, I really don't see why, of all the things Disney could be putting their money behind, like Snow White is with the one that makes him think, yes, this is the one we want to go for. Like the only real reason, I guess, is probably the dwarves could be fun. Like that's that's where the fun in the original Snow White comes from. Do you um, not remember the Hobbit Ed? Uh, oh. fo- photo realistic realistic <laughs> dwarves with very little to tell between their personalities. Although I suppose in in Snow White their personalities are written fairly really broadly on their sleeve. Mm. Um, but I don't know whether they'll get they'll get too realistic with it, and there'll be like one narcoleptic dwarf, one who has a PhD, <laughs> one that is just like really passive aggressive. Um, who else is there? Dump Sneezy. No, Sneezy, he's just got really, really bad allergies. Yeah, Someone they could all be millennials. Yeah, exactly. Although I, my hay fever has disappeared. I don't have it anymore. Wow. Apparently it goes in 15-year cycles. Um, mm. I had it for 14 years. And then it's just gone now. I'm fine now. I beat hay fever, guys. I fucking kicked its ass. So some good news, finally. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I'm a, a scientific miracle. <laughs> yeah. Do you think all the dwarves will be hot? Do you think that'll be the uh, the spin they do on it? We'll all be hot dwarves. They'll all be fucking whatever the one from The Hobbit was that they decided to make hot. 
Aragon. Uh, no, no, the the Richard Armitage one. Yeah. The, oh uh, no, uh, he no. was he was he was Thorin, wasn't he? There was no. another one who fell in love with one of the other elves. Yes. With well, yeah, he was the kind of the the hot one. Yes. Um, but I think if they've got any sense about them, they'll make a hot one or at least yeah. two hot ones. Shirtless as well. Snow yeah. White and shirtless dwarves yeah. who are all swole. Yeah. I think Doc would be the one for that. Like, Doc was the real snack of the original seven. Mm, yeah, it's the glasses. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, the, he takes them off. He kind of, like, lets his hair down. <laughs> he kind of flows around. <laughs> he takes that little hat off. And all of a sudden, yeah, he's got these kind of, like, lustrous locks. And then Snow White is, you know what I mean, sploosh. <laughs> yeah they should let the team of archer make there's no way in the seven doors it'd be even funnier oh amazing mm. um and in other kind of like more more serious disney news it, they announced kind of and kind of hedged their bets that maybe they'll possibly think about pulling their resources out of georgia in the wake of that state's abortion ban which uh, a lot of people have been saying, hey, you should probably, you know, say something considering the sheer number of people that Disney employs there. You know, all of the Marvel movies are shot out of Atlanta nowadays and they have like just loads of people there and big facilities there. And it seemed like, you know, the least they could do is like, hey, if this like draconian anti-choice, anti-women law becomes into comes into effect, that like maybe you could possibly do something to pressure the lawmakers to stop it from happening and this kind of feels like the least they could do of saying if it comes into effect because i think technically it's not law yet and it could still be held up in the courts and it could still be overturned but who knows like it's very much them being like you know we are not making that decision just yet because we don't have to but uh it's i guess on the one level it's like it's good that they are speaking out about it but also very, it's very mealy-mouthed and corporate of them. Mm, yeah, and we're seeing a lot of that, aren't we, with uh, with it being Pride Month and everything, where um, companies who spend a lot of their time acting not in the interests of everyone <laughs> suddenly mm. decide to care and put yeah. change of you know their logo to uh, the 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 rainbow flag. Yeah, it's a very. Uh, I think we've we've talked in the past on this show about how that kind of kind of like it, it basically is like the the, the idea of of neoliberalism or whatever or of like saying the the right things on social issues but then you know working your very hardest to just like stop people from forming unions or you know pushing for tax breaks that benefit you and and things like that like it does feel very disingenuous for them to just be like oh yeah by the way uh, we 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 think gay people are fine <laughs> which is like uh, but but we're not going to you know put some of our resources into maybe trying to fight the ban on trans people in the military or speak out about the you know the the actions that have been taken to strip healthcare from lgbtq uh ia people you know it, it very is it, it 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 very much feels uh quite hollow in these sort of things and the most you can say is like well well done you for saying the right thing when it doesn't at this point cost you you know until they actually say hey we're closing down our studios and we're moving everything to california again or at the very least like some low-tax state that doesn't have an abortion ban then you know it's, it, 
doesn't really amount to anything. Mm, yeah, and it, yeah, it really doesn't. So our main topic this week is Deadwood the movie, or as I'm going to title it in the uh, in the episode description, Deadwood the movie with mm-hmm. like twelve question marks. Because uh, yeah, this is a thing that I still cannot believe has happened that I have watched and that exists out in the world that they finally made the long talked about and seemingly impossible dream of a finale to hbo's deadwood for some context uh, deadwood was a drama series that aired on hbo from 2004 to 2006 airing three seasons it ended the end of the third season with a kind of abrupt cancellation which is the, the reasons for which are kind of mired in confusion even to this day based on all of the interviews that I read with the cast and crew over the last couple of weeks as people were really kind of digging into the details of the movie. Uh, basically, it seems to be that there was some miscommunication. Maybe people overplayed their hand and some people and discussions got a little heated and HBO ended up pulling the plug, uh, even though the show kind of was doing OK and got was obviously getting great reviews. Uh, they just kind of didn't want to deal with it anymore. But for years and years and years, there was all this talk about how they really wanted to do to resolve the movie with two. Uh, they really wanted to resolve the story with two movies that would be two hours long. But then you know the cast of that show, which was massive, kind of was scattered to the winds, and they were all very very busy and in demand because they're all fantastic actors, and you know they all got other gigs, and it just seemed like it would be impossible to gather together all of these people in one place to make two movies you know anytime it was brought up it just seemed like an impossible dream as i said earlier but within the last year or so there was news saying hey david milch has written a script they're getting everyone together and it finally fucking happened (laughs) and it aired on television and uh i for one was uh just really thoroughly delighted by it i thought it was a real great continuation slash conclusion to the story and I after the first 15 minutes of me just being like I cannot believe I'm seeing new Deadwood and just having this real kind of like a dream my sense of surrealism over it uh, I thought it was it was really really fantastic yeah there's there's that weird that kind of like co- cognitive dissonance the fact mm. that I'm getting this yes and these things, these revivals and these reboots and things are kind of soft reboots or legacy calls that we have become so accustomed to in the last kind of a half decade. There's so few that outstay just the pure nostalgia hit. Mm. And so many of the, you know, seeing the like big bands get back together or um, seeing long awaited um, sequels to things or soft reboots and, 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 you know, other such things of much beloved properties. Once you get through that initial, oh God, this is amazing. It it rings fairly hollow a lot of mm. the time. Uh, the exception to which is probably the Twin Peaks that happened. Uh, yes. I've, n- I've not seen it. So, you know, I can't really speak for it, but I hear people say it was quite good. But mm. with this, like I had the thing where as soon as I heard the Deadwood theme, Mm. I got like proper goosebumps. I was like, oh, "Shit, I'm I'm back in yeah. Deadwood." And then it was like, oh, "What what awful things are going to happen now?" <laughs> um, and then uh, then just a sheer panic that I couldn't remember anything that happened before because I think I think I'm, it's fair to say you've seen the show a few times. I've yeah. only seen each season once, and I saw season three maybe 
the year it came out. So I, and I've got a bad memory. So I couldn't remember much of what happened. But when you find yourself watching it, and thankfully for, for people like me, there is a few like flashbacks that prompt your memory. And you'll be like, oh yeah, now I understand why she was so mad at that guy. <laughs> but then you get to the realization that they have pulled off quite the feat of pulling together all these elements that, uh, that like you say were scattered to the wind these kind of people have moved on and managed to make a wholly satisfying conclusion to something that you loved and enjoyed that it didn't sacrifice the quality and didn't do anything out of fan service and didn't just put things in here because it thought that's what you wanted to see mm. it gave you it gave you what the show needed not what the fans needed and that was really amazing, yeah. especially given, you know, I mean, I did a whole episode on it a couple of weeks ago about Game of Thrones and how that show didn't stick the landing at all by going straight for the kind of, oh, we're just squeezing everything that the fans want to see um, and end up satisfying no one. The Deadwood film really is just quite remarkable how it, 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 it kind of pulls that feat off. Yeah, they didn't think, okay, what we really need is to get Dan to fight the reanimated corpse of Captain <laughs> Turner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to see that other eye pop out of his head. Yeah. God, yeah. That was, that's still my benchmark for just the most brutal thing I've ever seen on television. <sighs> it's fucking gross. It goes on for ages. It goes on for so long. It's horrible. There was a really great interview, and I think this I could preface basically any time I talk about an interview with a cast member of Deadwood, I can just I just assume it was great because everyone who was interviewed for this thing over the last couple of weeks has just been telling the absolute best stories and seems to have the, the greatest view on their career and the work they've done. But there was a great interview with W.L. Brown, who played Dan and who also wrote on the show, talking about how that fight scene came together. And mm-hmm. it was it was really fantastic because he was basically saying that David Milch came to them and says, OK, what we want to do is we want to have this big fight and I want it to be unlike anything anyone has ever done on television. So I don't want you to do any kind of like choreograph shit. You know, you've got four days to plan it out and I want it to be completely original and new and them just kind of like really struggling to think of it, what, what would involve. And I think the, the, the eye pulling out thing was an idea that they had just because someone in W.L. Brown's family had like his had called his grandfather a son of a bitch and his grandfather punched him so hard his eye fell out of his head oh, wow. as he like like oh shit that's a real thing that can happen um and then like uh, the solution for uh like the eye being uh kind of like jammed out through the thumbs was like someone else had heard a story they'd heard about someone also doing that to someone i go thinking oh this great moment in television originated from truly horrifying real life things that happen mm. to people that these people know i Fantastic. really don't want to go to the brown family barbecue either if that's how no. that shit's going to end up but but yeah i think for me in terms of like fan service maybe the closest it gets is, Dar- is garrett dillahunt showing up as a character in the crowd at one point and just mm. being like i God, they got him to play a third character. Just I heard trip. that happened, but I didn't notice it. That was it was they 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 got that one by me. It, he's like the first person who and spoilers. Uh, <laughs> I should say that now. Um, kind of like mild spoilers, I guess. Uh, if you if you're listening to this, you probably know some stuff about Deadwood. But he uh, he's like the first guy who throws something at Hurst at the end when he's being paraded through the street. Uh, And he's very like heavily made up with a beard and everything like that. The only reason that I knew it was him was that I I knew he showed up because Timothy Oliphant mentioned it in an interview, and also like he has 
uh, he has very distinctive eyes. He's just very distinct. He's a very distinctive character actor, you know, and mm. like it's very hard to not to not to spot him. But like that to me kind of felt like the only thing was where it's, it really is like just so deep and doesn't draw attention to itself at all. Uh, although I did find it quite funny watching it and thinking, ah, it's kind of like he's the Rob Snyder of the David Melcher universe, just like showing up in a crowd to shout at <laughs> shout at someone. And also, uh, this maybe I'm the only person who thought of this, but when Hurst is getting beaten up and like uh, Bullock is standing off to the side and just kind of waits a while before he gets everyone off, it just reminded me about that Hannibal Buress bit where he's talking about like his cousin who he's not so close enough that he wouldn't let people get a few hits in if he was being be- if he's being jumped <laughs> and yeah. it's just kind of like him going like hey 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 that's my cousin get off him <laughs> you know she's <laughs> like hey 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 that's the junior senator from california mm. but yeah for, for me like the thing didn't feel so much like fan service as it was like character service like it was giving the characters a moment to shine and giving them a chance to continue telling their story even if it was just to end their story, you know, to, to die, uh, giving them, you know, maybe a, a a bit of grace, particularly in the Calamity Jane story of her kind of trying to reconcile with Joni after so many years apart and just being devastated by uh, Charlie's death and then getting to save Bullock. The, the, the uh, Joni saying, uh, no, that was you, Jane, to her after she shoots the, the Hurst guy. Yeah, that made that made me tear up. I cried mm. a lot watching it, which is surprising considering it's a very bleak and violent thing. But yeah, I, I was just like so overwhelmed by getting to see some of these characters get like their one moment of happiness in a show that was often so brutal to them. Mm. Uh, was really affecting to me. Yeah, and some of them don't get that moment. Let's no. be honest. The well, ones that really they? deserve it do. Yeah. And it's it's weird to think that like a lot of the characters had to end in a certain way or had to not end in a certain way because they're real people who had real yeah endings in in real life. Mm. Yeah, although I think you know some of the stuff with Hurst, like George Hurst, was a bastard. He was like a really horrible man, as like basically everyone in his family was. But like uh, I'm pretty sure he wasn't beaten up on the street in South Dakota. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure, like they, they, they are willing to take liberties. But you're right, and like they can't necessarily have like Seth Bullock go out in a blaze of glory mm. because that's not what happened with the guy. Yeah, yeah. Were were you given the 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 kind of dramatic events that punning tended engulf the real life Dreadwood, mm. uh, Deadwood? Uh, were you surprised to not see it end that way? I mean, I think given the year that the movie takes place it's like 1889 i think that was after the fire had happened oh okay uh yeah the deadwood fire happened in uh 1879 i think let me just see i'm just i thought you were pulling i thought you were pulling that out of your your history degree (laughs) yeah that was what i focused on uh just just Hey, can I just learn as many things about Deadwood as possible? <laughs> you must have done at least a module on Deadwood. I, I would have loved to have done a module on Deadwood. I think that would have been absolutely great. Yeah, 8079 was when it happened. So I think given the chronology of the show, that would have been what season four ended with. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most likely thing. And, and so this is taking place after the town had been rebuilt and had really become more... Like not completely modernized, obviously they're just putting in telephone poles in the 
movie. But, it, you know, like, it, it would have been weird for them to do the fire, I think, at this point. Mm. Like, so much time had passed. If the movie had been made, like, two or three years after the show ended, then that's probably what it would have involved. They would have had mm-hmm. to have dealt with the fire some way. Although this did have a, a pretty cool fire when Bullock decides to take it to Hurst by setting all of his lumber on fire, mm-hmm. which... I loved, I thought it was a great shot of Timothy Oliphant being illuminated by the flames, and I thought it was a real good display of something that David Milch has always been great at, which is um, character as plot, mm-hmm. where the events are dictated by genuinely what the character would do, not because, oh, this is the thing we need for the plot to move along. Like, setting fire to the property of, like, a man who is demonstrated to just, like, murder people, have people murdered in cold blood, and is just, like, a ruthless bastard uh is probably not the right thing to do but it's exactly the thing that bullock would do because uh, you know he's been trying to be a, f- a family man and you know kind of like this upstanding pillar of the community for so long that uh a chance to snap probably was what he was looking for yeah it's it's nice to see obviously time has moved on but everyone bringing the requisite kind of maturity to where the characters have ended up Mm, yeah, uh, with, with the possible exception of like Al Swearingen and Dean McShane, where Al is just someone who's kind of elemental. He's all he's he kind of became powerful enough to be who he is from uh, you know when we first meet him, and he hasn't really changed that much. Although obviously you know his infirmity in the show, which I think very clearly, well maybe not clearly, but I think very easily is kind of like substituted for David Milch's own health problems. Like that, there was a, a great poignancy to that sort of stuff. But he was still felt fundamentally the same person that he was when the show ended. Mm, yeah, totally. And similar as well for like Calamity Jane. Like she had kind of maybe pulled herself together a little bit from some of her low ebbs on the show, but still like hadn't really uh, moved on from the various like griefs and traumas that had kind of plagued her over the course of the series but that's that's what the character is that's you know what's so great about robin weigert's performance is how she manages to make the character dynamic even though she doesn't fundamentally change that much no she becomes slightly less drunk at parts yes and this was probably the least drunk that she's been although she does also get drunk mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's just that's just that's just calamity jane for you but i think what what i really liked about it is just how much it allowed everyone in the show to show their age. Like, it didn't do that thing where, oh, the characters have aged up, but everyone still looks, like, 21st century old. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, where, like, they let Timothy Oliphant's hair go grey. He doesn't look like his character in Santa Clarita Diet, which, you know, is being filmed the same year, but he looks, like, 20 years older in in Deadwood than he does in in that show uh, like they do really emphasize how much time has passed and that's obviously shown in the fact that deadwood isn't just a muddy pit anymore <laughs> you know it feels like a real town where people live but uh, it's also just evident in you know the faces of everyone particularly like someone like charlie udder who does look just like so much older and kind of more gentle and genteel than he did at the time you can really tell that his station in life has changed considerably since the last time we saw him Mm, yeah i i have to say i was really really pleased that there was some hand holding 
through that the the episode because mm. it did take into account that yes some people will have binge watched the whole thing yeah. but there will be a lot of people who haven't and i really benefited from it but also it did remind me of how young the actors looked yeah you really do get that in like the flashbacks between um Alma and seth like mm. whenever they see each other and they remember their kind of brief time together in their brief relationship that that was very affecting to me was like their that sense of like the path not taken with them has always been like to me just really palpable that sense that they work briefly together but you know it it could never really work and seeing them together at a later point in their career and that spark still being there but you know she's you know a very successful businesswoman and has all of these interests and she's raising quote unquote her daughter <laughs> um and uh the uh and he obviously has his family and his three kids and he's you know settled down happily with Anna Gunn, who I'd forgotten was on the show originally, but like oh yeah, like it's, it's amazing just how stacked that cast was. Like mm. you forget the people who showed on it. Like uh Kristen Bell obviously is in an episode or two of Deadwood. Uh mm-hmm. does not end well for her. Nope. Uh which can be said of most people who appeared on Deadwood. But yeah, it was uh the, the particularly the scene of them at uh Sol and Trixie's wedding I think where they're dancing together and it's intercut with all of their the you know of the images of them together was just yeah I found that very very moving and, and you know obviously solves a utilitarian storytelling purpose which is oh this is what the these characters relationship was and why them seeing seeing each other again after so long would be so meaningful to them but also it has that emotional component as well mm, yeah and they they really skipped on a lot of um expository dialogue i know mm. that that's not not deadwood's thing um yeah. it has a very kind of uh shakespearean uh lyrical quality to the the sing-song dialogue yeah. um whilst it's also disgusting <laughs> <laughs> um and yeah there was none of that oh have not seen you for a while or oh god it's been a while since you know this guy did this Mm. um it used those little moments where it flashed back to also yeah obviously to jog your memories of what's going on but also to save us having to do that yes and they were all they were all dialogueless weren't they pretty much yeah pretty much certainly like the uh it, it was very much you know trixie shooting hearst was just you know her actions and uh alma and seth together was wordless and al with Trixie, you know, there, there was very much like these are almost like sense memories, really. Like mm-hmm. you, the way you don't necessarily remember the exact words that someone said, but you remember the way they made you feel. That that they worked really well in that context, and particularly in yeah, just some of the the really devastating stuff that happens happened at the end of the third season, like the, them killing the prostitute and then saying to her that it was Trixie, and the impact that it had on a lot of people and the guilt that clearly hangs over you know, everyone basically over uh, the lie agreed upon that they had there. Mm. Yeah. It re- the, the use of flashbacks really brought a lot of that home, I felt. Yeah. But then if you, if you watch something like The Wire, there's a flashback in the first episode, which feels really out of place because mm. you were supposed to have been paying attention. Yes. But in, in this, it, it works. Yes. Even though it's yeah, out, of, out of keeping with the style of the show as it was, but uh, it's necessary and uh, done in a very classy way. Yeah, and there is a, there's like a formal reason for it, which is that these characters are, for the most part, seeing each other for the first time in years. 
and they are their memories are being stirred up so you know the flashbacks are there it doesn't just feel like lazy storytelling it feels like you know a way of illustrating what the characters are feeling mm. in the best possible way and like you say yeah it, it completely avoids expositionary dialogue it really is just you know when when they see each other again it's like people saying well my stars you know how it's been so long it is basically like oh yeah that's the sort of thing you say to someone when you haven't seen them for a long time but you don't feel like you need to sit there and just like remember the time that you and bill hickok shot that guy in the street because you figured out that he had murdered the swedes ah what a time we had when we were were we ever so young you know (laughs) Like they don't feel like they need to say that. It's very much okay. This is uh, and uh, you know this story is continuing something that happened from the previous one. This is about George Hurst trying to use the you know the 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 near fatal shooting of him as leverage over these people and yeah. You know, so continuing the story that had been left unfinished with the third season, but not like spending all of their time. Uh, recanting everything is it's very much like okay this is the story we're telling now you don't need to worry too much about all of the stories we told before the 36 hours of television we put out more than a decade ago mm. did this ending wrap up deadwood in a way that you could maybe argue that it's a perfect show I would say so. Obviously, like we both just watched it like very recently, and it's kind of hard to pass this this addition to the story with you know the 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 stuff that was done in two thousand four through six. But I do feel as if it resolves things very well for some of the characters. I think that Al's final scene and his final line in particular is mm-hmm. like a real perfect way for that character to go out and i'm not even like speculating on whether or not he actually dies because it's kind of ambiguous on that point Mm -hmm. like the final shot could be either you know the last spasm of life going out of him or just him trying to reaffirm to trixie that he is he's still there i think that's just like such a beautiful kind of moment of television it feels perfect for him it feels uh nice for the characters for for sol and trixie to have this moment of resolution for them and their relationship and you know you get this real kind of like warm fuzzy sequence of them at the wedding which is really really great like i said jane's arc i think her reconciling with trixie and getting to be the hero that maybe she had always imagined she could be Mm -hmm. uh is really nice but also doesn't feel like forced it feels like oh that that is the right moment for her to step up for her to have that bit of intuition and to think oh i need to I need to do something to save Bullock at this moment. And then, like, the minor characters, like, it doesn't feel like it goes out of its way to really build up Doc, for example, but it gives Brad Dourif some amazing stuff to do. In particular, I think his line, bleeding always stops eventually, mm-hmm. is such a good Doc line and is such a, in the way that it's real double meaning. <laughs> Basically, it stops because you'll get well, it stops because you die. <laughs> like, it, that's such a wonderful turn of phrase, and he does it so well. Like, it really feels as if all of the people who were able to come back, but, you know, obviously there are some notable absences like Powers Booth, who sadly passed away uh, in the intervening years, and Titus Welliver, who's just probably too busy filming the 77th season of Bosch. You know, mm-hmm. those people obviously couldn't be involved, which is a shame. But, you know, for, for everyone that showed up, it really felt like it didn't 
end their story in the sense that you know all these people are going to you get the sense that this story is going to continue on for these characters and they're all going to go on and live lives that are going to have highs and lows but for the story that the show was telling it feels like a nice way of wrapping it up without feeling like Milch is struggling to be like okay I have all these plot threads I need to do and all these characters I have to service it's more just kind of like okay this is this is the story that I think works as a capstone to this this work of art that has occupied my mind and my and has defined my career for the best part of the last two decades. Mm. Now, now Milch has has put a cap on it um, with the with this movie that has you know had such a long route to to, to fruition. And given that you know your your aforementioned the guy's got some health problems, mm. where next for Milch, if anywhere? I I I hope. He gets to make another show. I think he's obviously, since Deadwood, he has had just a real bad run of luck. John Cincinnati and Luck were both cancelled after one season. Although Luck, you know, started filming a second season, but they just killed too many horses. Mm. It just seems like such a weird thing to say about that show. But like, yeah, they just killed a bunch of horses. They were burning through those horses. Yeah, that was there was just nothing they could do about it. Uh, you know, like, uh, and then his show, I think it was called Money, was the show that he was going to do with Brendan Gleeson, which they did a pilot for HBO, but didn't end up happening. Uh, but then, you know, HBO then picked up Succession, which from everything I hear about it was basically the same show, but mm-hmm. a little, maybe a little funnier. You know, I would like to see him make another show, but, you know, he has, he has Alzheimer's, he's very much, based on a lot of the interviews that I read, you know, he maybe struggles a little bit to be this kind of force on set that he used to be like he you know the, the, all the stories about him working on Deadwood and John versus Nasty is he's like this kind of real force of nature he's running in and telling actors okay I've rewritten everything here's five new pages and we're gonna just like it's gonna kind of make it up as we go along and it's all about the interconnectivity of the universe and go you know like he 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 now is more kind of like he has to type out what he wants to happen and you know it's it's kind of a lot more effort than it used to be for him so I, I i would like to see him make another show and maybe give us a sense of what that new pace that he works at is like but at the same time you know i feel like he's a he's earned a rest if he wants to make this the end of of all of his work then you know i think it would be that i i personally think that would be a nice nice way for it to go but you know if he wants to do an even sadder, more melancholy kind of final work than this, then uh, I'd, I'd love to see it because I do think he's a singular talent. And uh, yeah, the idea that this would be the end of it is both comforting because I think this was he really knocked it out of the park, but also, you know, very, very sad. Mm, yeah, I agree. We end this episode of the show as we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Uh, I got a film to recommend um, mm. that, you know, when you, you kind of hear about something, but you don't get around to seeing it at the cinema or, you know, when it when it first comes out on VOD and then it lands on streaming and you watch it and you go, why the fuck didn't I catch this earlier? Um, I'm talking about a film that came out last year. It's called Thoroughbreds, mm. um, a very dark, um, darkly comedic drama, I guess you could call it, um, from director Corey Finley, and that's it's their directorial debut, I believe, um, starring Olivia Cook and Anya Taylor Joy, and it was the last um, released 
performance by the late Anton Yelchin mm-hmm. uh, as well. It tells the story of uh, two girls and their friendship. They they kind of uh, grew up together but drifted apart when uh, one of them um, had a very disturbing incident with some horses. Uh, there's a serious Equus vibe uh, to this. Um, but uh, the other is hired to help them um, bring up their academic grades. And as the two of them learn to get along and understand each other's peculiar rhythms um they start to hatch a very dark plot indeed uh, that deals with uh, the former's um abusive stepfather um and it's uh, very taut it's um very funny um and the two leads have excellent kind of warmth and chemistry given that they're playing what could be quite easily flat characters Mm-hmm. Um, they bring some real life to it. And yeah, it's it's out and about on streaming. I found it on Now TV in the UK. Um, and it's definitely worth uh, 92 minutes of your time. Fantastic. Yeah, I've been meaning to catch up with that because I do love, uh, I do really, really love Anton Yelchin. And uh, yeah, every time a, a film crops up that he happened to shoot prior to his death, I'm always like, oh yeah, like I really want to see that because I, I really miss that guy's work. But then there's always that sense of like, Oh man! After this, there's no more. Mm. It's the same reason why I haven't watched a lot of the movies that like Philip Seymour Hoffman made in the last year or so of his life. Because it's like, mm. if I don't watch them, then there's still more Philip Seymour Hoffman movies for me to watch. It's not yeah. a definitive end to it. But yeah, that that movie did sound really really cool, uh, and I I for one will definitely try and check it out if it shows up on streaming over here. Mm. I am also going to recommend a movie. And it's a movie from 1990, directed by Charles Burnett, called To Sleep With Anger. I'm recommending it particularly because Criterion just put it out and it is on the Criterion channel currently and it expires at the end of this month. So if you have access to that, then get on it because it's a really great movie. It stars Danny Glover, who also produced, as a man who goes to visit the family of a kind of an old friend who... Uh, initially when he shows up he's kind of like very garrulous and entertaining there's a certain kind of like roguish charm to him you know a guy who really hasn't settled down and and just you know kind of goes out there and lives his life and drinks and kind of lives it up but as the movie progresses you get this real sense that he is there's something a bit more sinister about him he starts exploiting the tensions within the the family particularly between uh, his friend and his uh, younger son and that between the younger son and the kind of older son and you know in the, the younger son's marriage and it's just a real beautifully played a very tense chamber drama of all of these people being put in close proximity to each other and tensions kind of really boiling up over the duration of it and there's a there's almost something kind of fable like about it particularly in how it uh, the, the story resolves itself and it is probably the best performance I've ever seen from Danny Glover, who's an actor I like a lot in general, you know, very, very talented actor. But in this, he really does seem to be playing to the 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 top of his game as, as it pertains to, you know, his charisma and his charm, but also his capacity to suggest menace without really saying anything. You know, there's a, it's, it's a, a movie very much of subtle innuendo and very telling glances and uh, he's he's really really great at that and the whole cast is is really really great as well and it's just a wonderful ensemble of all these people that feel very lived in and very real 
and I was just really, really blown away by it. I think it's it's really, really great. So that's here's uh, To Sleep With Anger by Charles Burnett. Mm. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, Player FM, all the usual places. Raters, reviewers, and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.